Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Elk Shape Podcast. If you're a first time listener, we're all about hard work and discipline, be the gratification, being accountable to yourself. That means kicking butt and taking names. Right now, COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, hopefully you're using it as a positive, taking advantage of every second of the day to knock out those honeydews and to focus on things that you've been putting off. Maybe it's your fitness. Maybe it's cooking. Maybe it's uh, e-scouting or tuning your bow or getting together with your hunting partners on the phone and planning the fall and researching units, uh, there's always something to be done, and I hope you're taking advantage. So, guys, I appreciate you tuning in. We're going to have an awesome podcast today. We're bringing on Kyle Douglas, the dude who won the Vegas World Championship uh, in 2020. Great guy. He's only 23, but, man, he's super smart and kind of nerdy in a cool way. We're going to talk about technical archery and his setups for hunting, we're going to talk about his elk hunting prowess as well as using horses and what he's learned. Uh, we're going to cover the Vegas shoot, kind of go over that, relive that, get into the details behind that. It's a great podcast, so we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, our proud partner is Vortex. Uh, these guys are American-owned. 
veteran-owned, Wisconsin-based, and everybody, the engineers, the designers, the producers, all those guys and gals that distribute a premium line of sport optics, accessories, and apparel, man, they are all about elk shape. So thank you, guys. We appreciate that you're dedicated to providing awesome customer service. You have that exceptional quality, and you back everything up with the unconditional, transferable, lifetime VIP warranty. Thank you, Vortex, for all that you do. So right now... I am ordering AAE elk shape veins. They're the Max Stealth 2.6 inches, 7.4 grains, and they're going to be packaged and shipped over to me, and then I'm going to sell those to y'all. So if you are going to be building bullets soon, I'll let you know those are going to be live. We have our 20 for 20 workout program that's going to be dropping in about a week. 20 workouts that take 20 minutes or less for 20 bucks. It's super utilitarian meaning it is straight up, here's your workout, here's how to do it, and they're all video supported. That's what always takes me the longest is I film them all, edit them. It's in a private video. You can't access this on YouTube, and you don't need very much equipment. If you just have a dumbbell or just have a sandbag, you're good to go. And it's hopefully going to be a gateway drug for you to maybe try 21 days to elk shape or 90 days to freedom. We'll keep making more programs. Our YouTube channel's crushing. We got some pretty cool technical archery videos on there. So if you're not a subscriber, go check it out. We're doing the archery bag target build video. It's dropping. It's dropped. So go check it out. We build a really kick butt custom kick ass custom bag target holder i bought a bunch of morel keep hammering targets for my home archery range because i really want to kill an elk and i feel like i need to shoot my bow and make it very convenient to do that so i built these super sturdy awesome and i posted them on instagram got hundreds of messages about how what's the where's the designs what's the material list so i made a 24 minute video showing how i built those all the dimensions step by step check that out and make sure if you go to elkshape.com and it pops up to subscribe to our emails i send out like one or two emails a month and i'm not asking for anything i'm giving away information uh recent articles uh recent information on draw results things like that so up-to-date fitness nutrition stuff check that out and that's what i got so let's get into the podcast with mr kyle douglas the dude won vegas he's a stud appreciate you guys listening to this podcast you have a lot of choices and remember separation is in the preparation all right, so Kyle Douglas in the house. What's going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. Just kind of hanging out, doing the quarantine thing, getting some homework done. Oh, yeah, so that's right. You're in school. What are you studying? Uh, I'm going into mechanical engineering. Oh, okay. Of course you are. So you are smart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm just dumb enough to take a bunch of math classes, I guess. Okay, what year are you? Um, I'm a senior, so I'm graduating this semester. Okay, cool. And do you have internships or something lined up? Um, not as of right now. Um, I've just got my archery shop, and then I'm looking at actually shooting professionally. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, so we should probably introduce you to everybody. Guys, this is the dude from Utah who straight up won Vegas this year. Uh Congratulations, by the way. I we're gonna get into that, man. But you are pro for sure. Like you won Vegas. Uh, is that the world's biggest indoor tournament? Uh, yeah, it is. As far as I know, it's the biggest tournament in the world. I mean, yeah, I don't know what else would be bigger than Vegas. That's a pretty big shoot, dude. How old are you? I'm 23. 
Are you kidding me? Okay, so how many times have you actually competed at Vegas? Um, I've been going down there since I was probably, I would say, 15 or 16 maybe. Um, as a pro, I've been shooting it since I was 18. Okay, so what was your best placement until this year? I can't remember for sure. I want to say um, one year I was like in the top couple of the 899s, and I don't think there was a whole lot of guys that made the shoot off that year. So I was probably in like maybe 15th or something like that. Um, I actually won it as a young adult when I was 17 in the young adult championship division. But as a pro, I haven't ever. This is the first year I'd made the shoot off. What was your payout? Like, what was first place prize? Uh, from the Vegas shoot, it was 54. 54k boom um government's gonna take some of that cheese brother (laughs) yeah i'm sure they'll want their cut oh for sure that's huge and then um we're gonna give some context to that shoot in a second because i'll have listeners that don't know what we're talking about but um we'll talk about the differences between a round ends the score the shoot off the butt pucker factor when you've shot 29 x's in a row things like that but um we're gonna back up to you won how many people came knocking on your door are you your own agent now i mean are you negotiating contracts i mean surely you were sponsored leading up to this but also certainly uh some new people have probably reached out yeah there's always you know after you in vegas there's always a whole bunch of people trying to contact you and stuff. Um, you know, I'm I'm still shooting for all the same companies I was before. I I don't get into the whole. I mean, at least I haven't in the past. Kind of the whole. You know, I'm going to shoot for the person that offers me the best type of contract deal. I just I pick what equipment I think I have the best chance of winning with, and then that's what I shoot. And if they want to sponsor me, that's great. You know, if not, I'm still going to shoot the stuff that I like to shoot. Um, so it, it does help you have. You know, usually you'll you'll end up with a little bit better contracts after Vegas for sure. Good. I think that's awesome, and I hope that you get to be pro. I think that's that sounds good. Um, let's go into Vegas. Let's nerd out a little bit. So you're shooting at 20 yards. You got a Vegas Vegas face. Explain the scoring of a Vegas face. Three arrows. The nuance. The rules. The time. That kind of stuff. Break it down for listeners. Okay. Yeah. So for Vegas, you're shooting 20 yards indoors. Um, you're shooting usually with compound. You're going to be shooting a three-spot target. So you shoot one arrow in each of the targets just so you don't bust up your arrows or you know bounce off and lose score. Um, you're going to be shooting three arrows per round and then a total of 10 rounds for 30 arrows total. Um, the highest score is going to be a 300, which is you know a perfect score, and then Xs are tiebreakers. So in your scoring rings, You've got an X, which is about probably about the size of like a penny or a dime. Um, the 10 ring is going to be about the size of a 50 cent piece, and then it just goes out from there. So you'll have X, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 on a three spot. Um, X's are just tiebreakers, so they're just, as far as Vegas goes, you know, it doesn't really, it'll affect your, like your entry into the shoot-off, you know, because everybody in the shoot-off is going to have a 900, but, you know, the highest X out guy is seated first or whatever so that's the only difference x's make um so for vegas you're going to shoot three days uh, um and to be able to make the final shoot off at the end you're gonna have to shoot a perfect 300 every single day um so you gotta shoot 90 arrows without ever missing the 10 um, which doesn't sound like it's that hard until you get down to vegas 
And Vegas is just the pressure cooker. I mean, there's so many people down there that are capable of shooting 900s every single day in practice. And we get down there in Vegas and there's a lot of us that, you know, end up missing one just because the pressure is so, so crazy down there. So everybody that, that stays clean for the whole weekend, shoots a perfect 900, goes into the shoot off and then it's just a sudden death shoot off. So you'll start um, by shooting the big 10. So for the first two rounds, if you, Shoot all three tens. You get to stay in. If you miss, then you're eliminated. Um, and then it moves on to X ring scoring. So you have to you have to shoot all three X's to stay in the shoot off. And if you miss an X, then you're kicked out. And it just keeps going until there's only one guy left. It's ridiculous. So, okay, day one shooting a three hundred. How many X's did you have? I can't remember this year. It's God. Now I'm trying to think about that. I, I think I had 27 or 8 or 9 X's on day one. Okay. Day one, did you feel like, you know, I'm shooting good, I feel good, um, and then can you just turn your brain off until the next time you step to the line the next day? Uh, I try to, but it doesn't quite work that good for me, you know, because it, it's Vegas, so you're just always thinking about it the whole day. So I try and – I try and only focus super hard right when I'm shooting, and then when I'm done, I try and just kind of relax and let it go so I don't wear out my mind. The, the mental game for indoors is huge. That's probably the biggest aspect of indoor archery is just your mental game and staying focused and calm. Um, so I try and just kind of relax as much as I can, but you can't ever get it out of the back of your mind. You know, you're just thinking about it the whole time about, you know, what do I have to do to, to keep shooting good tomorrow? And then then after you shoot the second day, then it gets even worse for me anyways, going into the third day. It's like, okay, if I can just keep everything together today, we'll be solid, you know? So my goal is always to, to make it to the shoot off. And then after that, then I just kind of have to refocus and worry about the shoot off, but it's always just a, it's a big goal to make it to the shoot off. So how long does it take you to get through 30, 30 rounds? Um, so it's usually about, I would say maybe an hour and a half or two hours, depending on, you know, how the scoring goes and stuff. So you have two lines, they'll have, you know, a target will have four people on it, two people on the bottom, two people on the top. The bottom line will step up and shoot. You've got two minutes to shoot your arrows and you come back off. Then they blow a whistle and the top line comes up, shoots their arrows, and then you all go down and score together. Um, and then there'll be like line judge calls and stuff. So if, if you have one that they cheat you think is really close and your group calls it out you can call a line judge over you know and they will they will give the final call so sometimes you get hung up waiting on on the judges to make it all the people that need calls and stuff and it slows it down a little bit um do you decide who you shoot with no they they tell you who you shoot with are you guys flighted based on your performance the day before or is it just random how do you know when you're shooting the next day so the first two days are random and then the third day, yeah, you're you're peered. So, you know, the, the top scores, it'll basically go from the top score all the way down, you know, as far as how you're lined up shooting. So you're shooting with guys that shot your same scores. Who did you shoot with the last day? Let's see. Who did we have that? Um, I had, I think it was me, um, Jesse Broadwater, Chris Perkins, and Chance Bobau. Okay, so I know Jesse. And chance, or I know of, I should say. Um, are you, dude? Are you intimidated shooting next to Jesse Broadwater and even Chance? Like that dude's legit too. Uh, are you intimidated? You're 23. Are you like, 
not intimidated. Uh, what's your mindset? We got to get into your dome a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, so when I first started shooting as a pro, it was a little crazy, you know, shooting up with all these guys. And now I've been doing it for a few years, so it's just kind of normal. I mean, that's who you shoot with every tournament is is guy like guys like that. So we're just kind of friends, you know, and it's just you're kind of shooting with your friends now. It's not like these these big idols. I mean, there's still guys that you look up to and things, but I see them more as friends now than as like my childhood heroes. Legit. That's a good answer. Okay, so dude, day three, you're in it. You're in the shoot off. Goal accomplished. Time to reset your mind. What's the time frame between the you pull your last arrow on your thirty your thirtieth arrow to the point where you're stepping up and shooting off and where are you ranked? That kind of thing going into the shoot off. Yeah, so we shoot the third day I think we shot earlier in the morning, so we was done. You know, we were done before lunch. Um and then the shoot off was at like five or six o'clock that night. Um so you've got you know, most of the day to kind of sit around and kind of try and relax and get your mind ready. Um, so I was seated third going into the shoot off. Who won it last year? I, I think it was Sergio that won it last year, I want to say. Okay. Um, so you're third to shoot. Does the first two guys hit the X? No, so we all shoot at the same time. Everybody is, <laughs> everybody shoots all at the same time. So you know, it's hard to see what, what's all going on and who all is is shooting what you know and so do you guys just shoot one arrow and then they check or is it uh three arrows then check yeah you shoot all three and then go down and check and it takes forever for them to check because they have to have three judges look at every single arrow just to make sure that it's scored right because it's such a big deal so they'll have to go through and every judge calls all the arrows and then they call out so they'll you know they'll start their weight at one end of the line and then they'll like they'll the judges will call it, and then they'll call out your name and what your score was, and we'll move on to the next guy. I called his name and what his score was, and then they just keep moving on. So usually for the first two ends, where it's just the, the regular 10-ring scoring, um, you don't lose very many people every now and then. You'll lose somebody. And then once it starts to go to the baby X scoring, that's when people start dropping out really fast. Okay, so how long did it take you from the time you stepped up to the line to the shoot-off to where it was down to the last two? As far as time, I can't remember. I think we went somewhere around like five or six rounds. Dang. Um, or five or six ends. Yeah. So, and then I actually won. There was five of us left. Um, and I was the only one to shoot all three X's. The other four guys all missed one that end. So I just, you know, I jumped up and won it, which isn't usual, but it was kind of weird for everybody else to drop out at that same time. That's, that's incredible. So that's some serious mental fortitude. So when you you won Vegas, do you just immediately you high five everybody that probably do a podium and then you sit around and do interviews and stuff until like when do you get to finally like get away from everybody and just like revel in your crazy amazing accomplishment? <laughs> yeah, it goes nuts, you know, after the shootoffs they pulled me to the side after cuz they had to figure out the rest of like who was second and third and that. Um then bring you back out and then you start doing all the interviews and stuff like that and then they do you know podium pictures and pictures of all your sponsors and the big checks and everything like that um and then they actually pull us away the top three away for a drug test you have to go do a drug test and then they'll they wait for the drug test to come back before they you know send out any checks or anything because if you don't pass drug test you don't win the tournament oh we they drug test in archery i did not know that that's legit um because you could take some sort of like 
I don't know. What would pe- what do people take like Ritalin or some sort of drug for focusing? They take all sorts of I guess people don't really do it that much, but they test for all sorts of different stuff. You know, beta blockers, um anything mm-hmm. that'll slow your heart down at all, you mm-hmm. know, blood pressure medicine and stuff like that a lot of times. They'll look for any sort of like, you know, other drugs like marijuana, anything like that that'll kind of make it so you're not in the same mindset and it's you know easier for you to focus or easier for you to slow your heart rate down or things like that. Mm. I want to geek out on technical archery and I want to talk about elk hunting. And so who better than this 23-year-old dude who won Vegas? I'm so impressed, man. I, I got to tell you. I mean, just the mental side, like the competitor in me is just super impressed because you got to have ice in your veins. And, you know, there's some big names you know, Jesse Broadwater is one of the bigger names for sure. Uh, that Chance dude, I think he's a PSE guy. I mean, that's that dude's been killing it. Um, even Levi Morgan, I, even though he's more of an, a 3D and an unmarked distance stud, he's he's a competitor. You know, it's just it's impressive. So, as as a 23 year old guy, you have your own archery shop. Is it is it a legitimate like? commercial building do you do a shop out of your house how does that work yeah so right now it's just like in a in a building out behind my house um i've got a you know a section framed in a, of a metal shop building out there that i work out of um but i'm actually looking to move so the the county that i live in is building a great big archery range of like a 60 yard indoor range like 100 yards outdoors be a really big place and they're wanting me to move my shop into there this summer so i'm going to be moving over into that building and kind of grow in my shop so that's awesome um who do you shoot for uh so f- as far as bows i shoot for pse uh, i've been shooting for them for forever um and then i've got a, a bunch of other sponsors as well you know i've got i shoot for gold tip b stinger i'm um, shooting true ball sites uh or true ball releases excel sites um do the hamski rest hamski peep uh shrewd scopes um q2i veins uh i'm trying to remember everybody just basically you know all of my all of my equipment yes now let's talk about uh your release because that gets me excited let's just go with what release do you use how many fingers hinge thumb what are you using yeah so normally for indoors i'll run a hinge a three finger hinge and outdoors i'll run a button um but this year, at the start of the year, I actually started shooting the butting and button and started command shooting it. So I'm actually like punching the release on purpose, um, and started doing that for indoors, and it started working really, really well for me. I'm running the the True Ball Goat right now. I'm just running a super, super light trigger, and I'm just real patient on the shot. You know, wait till everything centers up nice, and then send it when it's there. Okay, kind of just blew my mind there. So the goat's got a lot of adjustability, right? Yeah, so the goat, you can either shoot it as a hinge or as a thumb button. And it's got an adjustable finger. You can put a three-finger, four-finger, whatever you want on it. Yeah, that's what I was kind of alluding to. And then you just told me that you are punching that trigger, uh, for lack of a better term. You are in command. You know when the bow's going off. And you you just won Vegas. Uh, I've heard like Tim Gillingham does that as well. But how does the professional archer decide one day that i'm gonna go away from you know truly a surprise release surprise break a slow controlled shot process to 
I'm going to control when this, when this arrow is released. Yeah, that was kind of a big decision for me this year because I've always shot a hinge for indoors and I always shoot really well with it. Um, I've never had a whole lot of problems, but it seems like every now and then when I get under pressure, if I get a little bit weak on my shot, it'll take a little bit longer to go off and then I'll have some low misses every now and then. And I just got sick and tired of missing. I had a couple local tournaments here that I got a little nerved up on and I just got a little bit timid on my shot and missed. And I just got sick and tired of that. So I was like, you know what? Why am I doing this? Why don't I just shoot it when it's in the middle? If I can just point it in the middle and shoot it, I mean, that's the best way to shoot. And it's it's kind of crazy because, you know, punching the trigger is kind of like voodoo and archery, you know, the whole target panic thing and stuff like that. But if you wrap your mind around it and you don't see punching the trigger as a bad thing, as long as you have total control over it and you wait until it's perfectly centered up in the middle and then you touch it off, I think that's the most accurate way to shoot, you know, and you're not waiting for it and it's not wiggling. You just wait till it's in the center and you send it. But you've got to have the mental control to be able to do it and not shoot it before it gets to the center. Well, my buddy Joel Turner is going to roll in his grave. He's not dead, but uh, he might be dead if he heard you say this. This is cool for me to hear it because I'm pretty convinced that like everybody's journey is going to be different. And there's not one magic answer for everybody. And I think that it's really cool to hear someone at your level be like, you know what, this is what I'm doing. And the proof's in the pudding, y'all. Like, look what's look where he's at right now. So it's making me, you made me think about, so I shoot a thumb button right now. And I historically have hunted with indexes most of my life, like single hooks. And somewhere along my journey, I figured out how to kind of execute a really good shot with that and not just hammer it. And... um and then from there, I was, I would bounce back and forth between different releases, you know, uh, especially in the off season. And the reason why is because I just wanted to keep myself honest and have a really good surprise break, quite honestly. And and so the last three or four animals I've killed have all been with a thumb button, and I can't I can't shoot that thing with command, like I can't tell it to go off. The way I have it set set in my thumb, there's no there's no you can't punch. Um, if that, that should make sense to you, and so but it's pretty the the spring's pretty tight right now, and I notice as I shoot more and more, I start hitting low, and I think that's exactly what you said. Like it's just I'm getting tired, I'm getting weak, I'm pulling, it's not breaking, I'm aiming. And then when it finally breaks, man, my arrows will end up low towards the back end of my shooting session. So immediately, I don't want to just switch to a command shot. I certainly don't. Um, but I'm going to make that – I'm going to back that tension. I'm going to loosen up that spring so it's a little more hair and see what that does for me. Because I don't like sitting there aiming forever at all. Yeah. Yes, you're, you know, I wouldn't recommend command shooting to the majority of shooters. I don't think it's right for most people just because of the way their mind works. Most people are going to be way more comfortable just aiming and waiting and aiming until the shot fires. Um, you really got to have a lot of control in the right mindset to be able to trigger the release. And I may end up going back to a surprise style shot again in the future. Who knows? Um, but, you know, you have to have a certain timing on your shot. Even when I'm shooting a surprise shot, I have a really like, not super tight window, but there's a pretty fine window where I know my release needs to fire. And if it's not firing within that window, then there's a problem either. I need to be 
you know, adjusting something in my shot or I'm not holding the way I need to be holding to let the release fire right or something like that. You should, you know, have a pretty clear window of when your release would go off. Cause for me, if I don't have that and I'm just holding, holding, holding forever and waiting for it to go off, it just starts wiggling all over the place and then fires. Whereas if I have more of a kind of a shot window, that's a little bit smaller it'll kind of be floating, floating, and then my hold will kind of tighten up a little bit, and then it fires. Yeah, that makes sense. What release do you hunt with, bro? Um, I kind of switch around. Last year, I was running a hinge, um, but in the past, I've always shot, you know, just an index finger trigger, um, but last year, I hunted with a hinge without a click, so I'm actually cheating the hinge. You know, I just set it without a click and I said it so there's a lot of rotation in it for hunting um which is probably something that I, I mean I shouldn't do but I shoot enough target that it doesn't screw up any of my form or anything like that doing that for hunting um so I'll just get into it so that way I I still have control over it and I can speed it up or slow it down in a hunting situation but I don't get on it and hammer I get buck fever like you've never seen before so I, I tend to have a few issues every now and then if I'm running an index finger where a hinge just slows me down and lets me actually aim before I shoot. No, that makes sense. I That makes sense a lot. Uh, I'm going to probably hunt with my – I like a handheld for hunting, for, a, for mainly for anchoring. I feel like I get a better anchor position. I feel like there's less, there's less time involved as far as getting my thumb over the button and then – starting my process but uh it also you know changing back and forth from my index to a thumb button does kind of mess with my setup like my peep seems like it's a little high when i'm using a handheld the way i anchor versus when i have an index i feel like and so all that kind of stuff i've i've messed with and, and tinkered and I, I believe in tinkering um but one thing that I've I've put on my bow this year, hashtag not sponsored, but I really like it, dude, and I want to get your thoughts, is that I am guilty of a nose button. What's your thoughts? Have you messed with it? Have you messed with one yet? I've never put one on my bow personally. I don't like any sort of like a kisser button or nose button or anything like that. Um, I was screwing around with it this indoor season just because when the whole nose button thing went crazy, I was like, you know what, maybe something like that would – I don't know. I was just going to try it a little bit. So I just tied a little, uh, little piece of D loop on my string and kind of made a little knock and put it where my nose would touch it. And it drove me nuts. It was just like so distracting <laughs> that that was touching my nose that I couldn't focus on the target. So I just, I tore it back off and went back to shooting normal. I just, you know, very lightly touched my nose on the string and that's my anchor. That's cool. No, I get that, man. Uh, well, how many living in Utah, it's not like you have an abundance of, well, you guys have a lot of elk, but you're also pretty damn stingy with your tags. I'm sitting over here with like 15 points, but that's for limited entry. But y'all got some good like extended archery, some good spike only, and some general stuff. Uh, are you able to hunt elk every year in Utah? Yeah, I always buy a general tag, just to open bull unit, and just go hunt them on the general units. You know, it's it's extremely tough in Utah in the general season, the any bull units. Just because there's so many people and not very many elk, um, so we, you know, we hunt super hard. Don't see a whole lot of elk, and you're usually not getting chances at too many good bulls. Um, but you know, we seem to kill a few here and there, so it works out pretty good. You know, I hunt with my little brother and my dad. And, 
you know, usually we don't go without killing elk. You know, sometimes not all three of us will get an elk, but usually at least one or two or sometimes all three of us is going to kill a bull. Well, I get a lot of questions um, about hunting elk in Utah specifically, and I always feel like I'm not the best resource just because it is such an early opener that I don't know what to tell folks. I know I've hunted in Nevada. I've had a tag in Nevada. And I had great bugling, good elk stuff going on late August. And I've also been in Nevada on mule deer hunts where I see elk, like plenty of elk, uh, and they're starting to bugle. And I've even seen bulls with cows as early as August 24th bugling. Um, but how hard is it, man? When What's your opening day in Utah usually? And like, what is the game plan for the opener? Yeah, so for me, most of my elk spots that I hunt, I don't go until you know around the start of September. I've got a couple spots I've been looking at hunting on the opener. Um, I've just never been in there and done it before, where the bulls are still kind of grouped up, and you're hunting them, you know, before they start to rut, you know, right after they rub or right before they rub. You know, every now and then, guys will shoot some in full velvet here in Utah on the opener, um, but that you don't see that a whole lot, but. You know, at the start of the season, every now and then you can catch them when they're still bachelored up and you can hunt them that way. Just try and, you know, spot and stalk or, or cut them off when they're moving up to bed or something like that. But normally my plan um, is I'll just go hunt deer. I'll go hunt mule deer for the first two weeks. Um, and then once September kind of starts to get rolling, then I'll go over, switch over and hunt elk for the last two weeks of the season. Okay. Yeah. For the guys that are like not committed to the mule deer and they're going for elk, I just... I think I would probably look like be ground blind sitting over water or finding pinch pinch points. Are you guys able to bait in Utah? Yeah, we can. I've never tried that. Um, I know guys that use salt licks and stuff like that and have good luck with it. Um, and guys that sit water holes that work really well. Um, then there's also some other guys I know that, that hunt them super early in the season. Um, and they'll either sit water or else they'll just find trails where these bulls are moving from, you know, they'll kind of come down off the mountain and feed at night, kind of in some meadows and stuff. And then they'll move back up and they'll just try and cut them off on their way back up. Yeah. I think it would be a transition game or if legal, get some minerals on the ground or whatever and set up, figure out how to get like white tail, man, figure out your entry exit where you're not giving away your scent and you can find super dependable thermals and prevailing wind. I mean, elk can smell good too. So that's how I do it. Now, I'll be honest, Kyle, like that's not what I signed up for when it comes to elk hunting. Like I like to call elk. I really do. Or at least like them to be vocal so I can sneak in on them. So to to hunt them like mule deers or to ambush is not the sexiest, but you do what you got to do. Have you done much of the extended uh, archery in the in the Wasatch Front? Yeah, I hunt the extended quite a bit if I haven't filled my tag by the end of the season. Um, I'll usually hunt, hunt deer. Well, I'll kind of, it depends on what my season looks like. You know, if I've got tags in other states and stuff like that in September and October, then I'm usually gone doing that. But if I haven't filled my elk tag yet, um, I'll be hunting them, you know, kind of through, through the end of September into October, a little bit on the extended. Um, and then I'll usually hunt deer during November when they're kind of rutting and stuff if I haven't filled my deer tag yet. And then deer ends at the end of November, and elk usually goes until December 15th. So I'll, I'll hop back over to elk again and hunt some late-season bulls. But on the, the extended, is extremely tough to kill an elk, 
or especially a bull um, on the extended archery on the Wasatch. That's probably, I don't know, one of the hardest hunts you could possibly try and do, you know, in the U.S. as far as killing an elk. There's just so few elk and so many people hunting them. Um, I haven't killed one on the front yet. You know, I've had a couple chances and been super close and passed up on some some real little bulls and some really nasty spots before. Um, but it, it's a super fun hunt. But I, you know, I still manage to get on elk, but you've just got to hike super hard. Um, and you've just got to, you know, kind of know what you're doing a little bit to be able to get on elk on the front. The other tough thing is I usually hunt off horses for elk. You know, we'll pack in camps and hunt that way. And you can't do that most spots on the on the Wasatch because it's like a, a watershed area. So you can't have any animals in there. Okay. So on the front, that that's a limited entry until late season. Is that correct? Um, most of it's not. I think there's a couple bits and pieces that overlap with the Wasatch unit. Um, but as far as elk, most of that should be open bull unit. Okay. So are these bulls like moving into that as they're starting to migrate or are these like residential bulls that live there? Depends on the time of year. So early in the year, they're just going to be living there. Um, there's not a whole lot of them around. And then later in the season, once we start to get some snow, um, there's a few places where they'll kind of start to migrate in off of some CWMUs or limited entries a little bit, um, just depending on what part of the Wasatch you're in. Okay. Gotcha. That makes more sense. Cause you know, like I've, I've followed uh, a couple guys that get after it pretty hard and I've been impressed by some of the bulls they've seen. And I'm like, I didn't think, you know, that was known to have mature bulls in there, but you know, there's always going to be a mature bull in every unit. You just got to find them. Um, but, uh, what's your, I want to talk about horses in a second, but, uh, first and foremost, like, so if you don't have plans to hunt Utah per se, where what's your go-to state other than utah for elk um i hunt wyoming as often as i can get a general season tag um my dad and you know his his hunting buddy and my family's kind of been hunting up in wyoming for for a while we started doing that just because the the quality of bulls that we're hunting up there is way better than what we're hunting at home and there's way more elk um, but that's starting to get tougher and tougher to get a tag. It seems like more guys are putting in. We used to draw, you know, every other year guaranteed. A lot of times we get a tag most years. Um, and now it's taking a lot longer. I think it's two points or over two points now to just to get a general tag in Wyoming. So I'm starting to look at some different areas, you know, maybe up in Idaho or something like that where we can get a little bit better hunt than we do in Utah as far as quality of bulls on a general unit. Yeah. Did you put in for the uh, Wyoming special general or just regular? I just did the regular. Um, uh, it's pretty pretty big chunk of change for just a regular elk tag. I probably should do that so I can get hunt them a little bit more. But oh no, well. don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and Idaho's okay, but man, Oregon. I tell everybody, guys who listen to my podcast, hate me, but I'm like, everyone talks to thinks Oregon is is like, you know, Roosevelt's, but dude, there is a ton of public in the Hell's Canyon area and there's some good elk there and the Eagle caps. And yeah, I'm going to get, I'm going to get comments and messages, Kyle, after this podcast airs, people will be like, shut your mouth. But Hey, at the end of the day, there's 125,000 elk in Oregon. That's a lot. You know? Yeah, that is. It's I a didn't lot. realize Oregon was that big of like a, you know, a destination place to go hunt as far as like over the counter hunts for non-residents. It's definitely, I would say overlooked over the counter. And it's a really good backup plan, and they do have pretty good start dates. I think they changed their seasons this year to where 
it might open now in September instead of late August, but at least it's going to go through the entire month of September. It's always on my radar as a as an over-the-counter backup plan, to be honest. It's not that far. It's got some good elk. I mean, there's a lot of draw units, unfortunately, but if uh, if you're into rosies and you can totally get in after them as well, but um, I like I do like Montana, I like Idaho, I like Wyoming. I don't hunt Colorado because it's just a it's a really far drive for mediocre over the counter hunting, in my opinion. Um, but it's definitely like the stopping point if you're coming from the east or Midwest. It's like the first state you're gonna hit, and the amount of over the counter units is insane. I think people ask me all that, well, where should I go besides Colorado? I, I would probably say if you can draw a Montana general because the seasons are so long. That's awesome. Idaho's good in some areas, and Idaho's absolutely terrible in some areas. So you really got to do your homework there. And uh, and then Oregon's got it going on pretty good. Um, but, you know, this is from a Washington State guy, you know. So I don't even hunt my own state for elk. Uh, I, I, I do all out-of-state hunting for elk. Just because, you know, we have such limited seasons here and we have a high density of hunters per capita. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just the experience that I'm looking for. Uh, did you put in for New Mexico? No, I didn't. You know, I'm kind of slacking on putting in for all these states. I've always, you know, been in school and I never have time to hunt. It's like, you know, drive up on a Friday night and we'll get to hunt for like a day and then time to come home day and a half time to come home so it's super hard for me to put in i mean i I should be putting in but you know trying to get the time to hunt these these states and hunt for more than like a day at a time is pretty tough for me but now where i'm looking at graduating you know we'll have a little bit more time to hunt so i'll be looking at some some different options for hunting here in the next few years yeah and that makes sense man i mean you're you're doing your thing right now and you're going to be graduated and i think you know i think you're going to be pursuing some serious archery. Um, so obviously with the COVID-19, all of us are being affected. I had to postpone elk shape camps that I put on. What tournaments are you missing because of this thing? Yeah, we missed a bunch. You know, there was indoor nationals after Vegas and actually they have, uh, so there's two different, you know, kind of organizations and stuff. You have like USA archery and you have NFA, um, as far as target archery stuff in the U S I actually qualified in second for USA Archery Indoor Nationals for this year. Um, that was going to be back in Kentucky at the same place and time as NFA Indoor Nationals. Um, and they, they've canceled that, canceled NFA Indoor Nationals. Um, Dakota Classic, I think, is canceled. Um, we have a big one out in Redding, California. Is Redding canceled? That one's been canceled. Yep, Redding's canceled. Oh. So, yeah, they've, they've canceled a lot. It's starting to get a little scary. Well... Man, that sucks. Have you ever kicked ass at Reading? Um, what's what's your vibe at Reading? I love Reading. That's one of my favorite shoots. Um, the best I've done out there is I made the shoot off for first place one year and ended up coming out in second. Um, that's my my best finish in Reading so far. Wow, that's so impressive, man. I'd like to shoot with you and just watch your style. Um, what's your draw length? Um, so I'm usually right around like 28 and a quarter ish. Not, not super long. I'm pretty short. Well, since I have you on here, I'm going to pull up my YouTube channel. Um, we do a lot of technical archery on my YouTube channel and have a love hate relationship with comments on my YouTube channel because it's like, there's some guys that really post some great 
feedback. Um, there's people that know way more than me. And so I just bought a bow press. I just built my first bow by myself. And before that, I did a couple other bow builds where I kind of had my, my hands, my hand held throughout the process. And then like, this was my first real go at like, I want to make this set this straight, Kyle. Like I believe in pro shops without a doubt, like support your local pro shops, especially if they're good ones. But I also think guys should be able to tinker a little bit on their own especially like hunting purposes, like your D-loop breaks in the backcountry, you should have D-loop material and be able to tie that in and be good to go. You know, you should be able to see if like you have a limb, limb-driven, you know, rest and it's not seated. You should be able to adjust that real quick and be back on your game. And I always bring a backup bow too because, I, like I said, I drive a long distances to hunt elk. But uh, I'm not saying like just – eliminate the boat like your local pro shop i'm all about pro shops i feel like i have to say that some people think i'm not but i really like one of my best buddies owns spokane valley archery and he's my archery mentor dude and i still go out there all the time just to hang out with him but building your own bow is really important to kind of learn the process and just become better at archery and so i'll post what i'm doing and a lot of times, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going for it, and I'll get a lot of questions, man. So, um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about like a little technical archery and kind of go over. I'm gonna find some questions here as I chat with you, but I get a lot of questions on gripping the bow, and a lot of times, like on like I shoot for Matthews, so I take the engage grip off, and I usually use their side plates, or I'll put like rattler grips on. I I don't like a lot of grip. Um, what's your thoughts? What's your best practices on just gripping the bow and avoiding torque? Yeah, I'm the same way. If I was shooting a Matthews, that's the first thing I would do is pull off the grip and just go off the riser with some wrap on or some side plates. Even the new PSCs, um, the new Evos have got the rubber grip over them. Um, and I pull that off and just shoot it off the riser just like normal. Um, you know, grip is super, super hard to explain to everybody and everybody's going to grip the bow a little bit different. Um, but I tend to run it, you know, just kind of, you know, basically down the pad of your thumb, kind of right along your lifeline there. Um, your knuckles out about a 45 degree angle out from the bow. And I just like a super, super soft grip. Um, if you're influencing it in any way, you're going to end up torquing the bow. Um, and I don't, you know, they, a lot of guys either, you know, what they call heal the bow or put a lot of high wrist into it. Um, and my grip's kind of neutral, you know, the same pressure from the top of my hand all the way to the bottom. Um, and I just kind of think of my hand as like a sponge, you know, just let that bow just sink and soak into my hand as far as it can sink into there and just keep it as loose as possible. I love it. Okay. Do you run custom strings on your rigs? Yeah. So on my stuff, I actually build my own strings, um, just so that I can kind of tinker with stuff. You know, I'll play with different strand counts on different things. If I need to make one a little bit longer, a little bit shorter to make my bow do what I want it to do, I can do that. Um, you know, it's just, it's not worth me, you know, having to try and, you know, bother somebody to get strings from them or have to rely on anybody. I just like to know exactly what goes into my equipment and what to expect out of it. And I feel like I have a lot more control building my own strings. Um, but I don't build them for anybody else just because it takes me so long to build them. I'm super slow at it. And I probably don't build as good a string as somebody that does it day in and day out. Um, yes. So, 
you know, that's just kind of my mythology on that. And what material have you found to be like, are you, I imagine your BCY 452X or some of that, is it 454? Like what have you, and, and I like to talk hunting setups. I, I love that you're an indoor champion, but I like talking about your hunting rig specifically. So on a hunting bow, um, I used to run BCYX on a hunting bow just because it tended to stay bundled together a little bit better, didn't fray as fast. But now they're not doing that, and I've just run 452, 452X on everything. Um, on a target bow, I always run natural because so yeah. the different colors in bow strings are going to have more wax or more wax or less wax or more dye and stuff. So the, the bright colors are going to be a lot thicker than like a natural with no dye in it, so I can run more strands and get away with it. Um, on a hunting bow, I tend to just pick colors that don't have as much wax in it. So maybe like a black or like a light tan or a gray or something like that. That's not going to be, you know, super full of wax and dye. So I can get a little bit more strands. I tend to run like a 24 strand string on my hunting bow. At a lot of times I'll run like 28 strand cables, um, just to beef them up, make sure my timing's not going to move and not lose as much speed that, you know, anytime you add more weight to your string, you're going to lose a little bit of speed. So I try and keep that around a 24 strand if I can. Roger that. Okay, next question. Um, I, you shoot a hamski. I do too. Uh, before hamski, I was a SmackDown Pro guy. My da- my buddy Dan Evans sold that company, so I migrated over to hamski. I've been very pleased with the the Hunter Hybrid Pro, but I tend to run the Trinity on my bow hunting setups. What do you use? I'm just running the the Hybrid Hunter Pro. Um, the Trinity is a great new rest. It's got the extra bearing on the other side and stuff like that. Super solid rest. I have a problem for some reason on that rest. The, the bar that comes across comes down and wax my hand after I shoot. It's just, I got something weird going on in my shot, I guess. Um, so that kind of bugs me. So that's why I stick with the hybrid hunter. If it didn't do that, I would probably run the Trinity just because of that, you know, that extra stability with that bar running across another bearing on the other side. Okay. Next question. And I'm going to keep firing. Uh, Because I'm just fresh off the YouTube channel comments. And I try to tell guys that I'm not an expert at archery. I'm just the guy who tries really hard. So I'm good at killing elk because I try really hard. And honestly, I have a lot of hours, days, weeks, months in the elk woods. So I just have reps. So super fortunate to just – that's the secret sauce for me is just a lot of time. But I'm – you know – I try to be transparent, be like, hey, I'm still learning. I'm still in this process. And I try to just expose that, hey, I'm out here trying to learn and you never know it all. So I just have to preface that. I get a lot of questions on my my stabilizers and why do I have what I have. And I've always been tinkering with that just to try to figure out what feels the best. Currently, I got a 12-inch bar in the front. It's from Matthews. And then I have that shrewd, uh, you know, back bar attachment and I run, I think it's a 10 inch and I have way more weight on the back and it's offsetting a tight spot quiver. What's the general best practices for figuring out stabilizers for your hunting rig? Uh, God, it's going to be different for everybody and hunting is going to be a lot different than target. Um, basically I would say it comes down to what you're willing to pack. Um, the more weight you're willing to pack and the longer bars you're willing to pack, the better off you're going to be. Um, but you know, it, it's always a compromise. Do you want to be a little bit more stable on your shot or do you want to have a lighter bow that you're going to be packing around for 50 miles before you get a shot? 
Um, and I'm kind of in between, you know, I, I shoot enough that I can handle a little bit less stabilizer weight and still shoot well. Um, but I have a hard time, you know, sacrificing accuracy when I'm hunting because a lot of times I work super, super hard for one shot and I want to make that one shot as good as I can possibly make it. Um, so I'll tend to run, you know, a little bit of weight on my bars and have a little bit longer bars, but I would say, you know, it's going to depend a lot on your shot style as well. So if you're a super relaxed shooter, um, and you basically, you know, just keep the minimum amount of pressure into your bow to keep it against the back wall while you're aiming, um, and you're just super patient, wait on it, wait on it until it fires, then you're probably going to want a lot more back weight than front weight, um, on your bow. Whereas like me, I'm a really aggressive shooter in my shot. So I like to get into my, my bow and I load up into the wall and I pull super hard against my wall. I use a lot of my back in my shot. Mm. Um, so I tend to run a lot more front weight on my setups because I'm pulling against that and it tends to steady me up a lot better. Um, so it just depends, you know, on, on hunt setups right now, the last couple of years I've been running a counter slide from B stinger. So it's basically a kind of a hybrid between a front bar and a back bar yeah, and just a front bar. Um, so, you know, it sits off the side of my bow and, you know, it doesn't stabilize quite as well as like a front bar and a rear bar would, um, but you can still move it forward and back and adjust the weights and it fits on my horse a lot better than having a back bar that I have to take on and off every time I can just leave this on my bow when, you know, while I've got it on my horse. So that works a little bit better for me, but it's, it's really personal preference. You know, I would say like a six inch stabilizer isn't going to do a whole lot for you you're going to need to get into like an 8, 10, 12-inch bar to really see a difference. And then when you add a back bar on, you're going to see a lot bigger difference than you will with just a front bar. Okay, I can't argue. I I can't argue with the man. Um, let's end on this before we get to horses. So we do some arrow building videos, and you shoot gold tip. I'm an Easton guy. I'm not a victory archery guy. I think they're good. I've tried them. They're not for me. I, I go back and forth between FMJs and Axis. The reason why I shoot Axis is my Matthews is not the world's fastest bow, but it's very forgiving and it's accurate. So I've been dropped down to Axis for the last, well, for last year, and, and I'll be doing the same this year. But man, oh man, people are so into front of center and they want to know all the things about arrow weights and all that kind of stuff. So. I want to hear about what your hunting arrow setup is. I'll tell you what mine is briefly. It's I cut the arrows as short as possible. I put about 75 grains of brass up front. I don't like outserts personally. I've had bad experiences with them. Uh, I like fixed broadheads uh, because that's what's legal in Idaho. And and uh, I just think if your broadhead flies well, you got a tune bow. Things are good. And um, what else am I going to tell you? I do run three vein and... I did quote clock my arrows, so to speak, and it seemed like almost all of them wanted to kind of go left. So I went with a three degree and helical and then to the left. And I kind of figured out that my groups are tighter with the helical, even though I was a little concerned about like overspinning and creating excess drag. The groups don't lie. So I have currently accesses that are helical to the left with max stealth veins. Uh, we did a video on four fletch and 
all sorts of configurations, and it seemed like a lot of guys were stoked on four fletch uh, with a little like a one degree offset. Uh, what do you tell us about your arrow setup and kind of some of the best practices? Then touch on front of center because people are so geeked out on that. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to me right now. How crazy everybody is going over the heavy arrow in front of center, and it it to me it seems more like a battle online. Like my arrow is heavier than your arrow type of deal nowadays. Yeah. Than it is actually setting up the best arrow for them. So I'll set up all of my hunting bows off of speed. I pick what speed I'm going to run for my specs and things like that, and then I'll build my arrow around that. Um, just because speed for me, speed is accuracy. If I go too slow. I'm losing a ton of accuracy. I notice a little bit in target bows. Um, you know, if I'm shooting a bow that's running like 270 or shooting a bow that's running like 290-something, I usually shoot better with the bow that's running 290-something. Um, it just gets the air out of the bow a little bit quicker. It's a little bit forgiving, more forgiving, um, a lot better in the wind and things like that. So, it, you know, it depends on what broadheads I'm running, too. If I'm running an expandable, um, at my draw length, you know, if I'm running 70 pounds – I'll be looking for 290 to 300 probably. If I'm running 80 pounds, I'm looking for 300 to 310 probably. Um, so with an expandable, you know, I'll kind of kind of add point weight until I get my arrow shooting about that speed. And I don't like to have a super heavy arrow. Um, if I'm having a heavier arrow, usually I'm going to add weight to the point instead of having the whole shaft be heavier up to a point. You know, I don't usually go anywhere above about 150 to 170 grain point on a hunting arrow. Um, with my insert and broadhead and everything, you know, all totaled up. But the, the main thing you have to pay attention to on that is a lot of guys add a ton of front weight to their arrow, but they don't pay attention to their spine and they're running too weak of an arrow by the time they add all the front weight. So any anytime you add more weight on the front of your arrow, it's going to weaken the spine dynamically. So it's going to flex more coming out of your bow. So you're going to need a stiffer arrow. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big thing a lot of guys don't pay attention to. They'll just run like a 340 or 300 spine and throw like these 200 or 250 grain points in the front of them um, and then wonder why their bow doesn't shoot as good. Mm. So always pay attention to that. Um, if I'm running fixed blades, I'm going to be running slower just because they don't shoot as good when they're shooting fast for me anyways. Um, you know, fixed blades are really hard to shoot well. You've got to get your bow absolutely 100% dialed as good as it could possibly be dialed. And they're still kind of tricky to shoot. They're just not super forgiving. You know, if you make a mistake, they're going to plane off a lot farther than just an arrow without a broadhead on it will, or even an expandable won't plane off as far. Um, so you got to make sure your equipment's dialed. I like to run, you know, around the 280 mark or something like that, maybe 285 with, with fixed blades, just because for me, you know, I shoot a lot better when I'm shooting a little bit slower with a fixed blade. They don't try and plane off as far. Um, so as far as my hunt and arrow setup, um, last year I was running 80 pounds, um, at like 28 and a quarter. I cut my arrows just barely past my rest. I like them as short as possible. I was running a gold tip airstrike. Um, and then I what's the grains per inch? I'm sorry. What's the grains per inch on the air? I don't know a lot about gold tip, but what's the grains per inch on those? I can't remember off the top of my head. They're they're an ultralight shaft. Yeah. So it's going to be – I can't remember what mine was on the, the 250 spines. I'd have to go look at them. Um, but my total arrow weight last year was, I want to say, 450. Um, and that was with the 100-grain head. And then with the – so they have like a kind of a half-out insert and then a ballistic collar that goes over the top on that. Yeah. Um, so your insert's going to be, you know, roughly 40 grains ish, maybe 
maybe a little more than that. So I was effectively running about 140, 150 grain point on there with just a hundred grain broadhead. Um, so I run them as short as possible. And then I run a four fletch on the back. You know, I've, I've done a lot of testing as far as three fletch and four fletch, um, with target bows, it kind of depends on the setup and what I like, but you know, at least the last couple of years, everything I've been running has been four fletch. I've been, te- you know, tested it. And for me, it's just more forgiving. Um, if I make a little bit of a bad shot with a four fletch, it doesn't miss by as far as it does with a three fletch because it corrects faster as it comes out of the bow. Okay. And also, if something moves on my bow and my bow happens to come out of tune a little bit, it's way more forgiving when it's out of tune a little bit with a four fletch than it is with a three fletch. Um, as far as hunting goes, um, that's kind of when I started started looking at the four fletches. One year I was setting up some fixed blades to go hunt. Um, I think I was going to Idaho with them and I was having trouble getting them to group. You know, they were shooting good, but they weren't shooting great. You know, I was shooting like three or four inch groups at 60 and I just couldn't get it any better. Hmm. Um, and so I was trying to just trying to find out what the missing piece was. And I was messing with my bow, changing everything. And finally I was like, you know what, let's throw four veins on there and see what it does. And instantly it just like tightened everything up, you know? And then I was hitting one inch dots at 60. So it's just, for me, it's a lot more forgiving, especially with a fixed blade when I slap that extra vein on there, just because it corrects so much faster, especially if I make a mistake or my bow happens to come out of tune just a little bit. Okay, so will you what, – what veins are you running again, and then are you offsetting them at all, or are they straight on the four? So I'm running the Q2Is um, on everything that I do. Hunting, I'm using a wrapped X. So it's basically like a, a blazer shaped vein, you know, it's kind of been the most popular vein lately. Um, I did run some, some longer, lower profile veins, um, with expandables. They worked really well, but when I was trying to shoot fixed blades with them, they just didn't have as much control. So I went back to the higher profile and they tend to control them just a little bit better on a hunting arrow. Um, God, depends on what I'm setting up for, you know, usually with a fixed blade, I would run like a two to three degree helical on them. Um, and that seems to work pretty good. I like to get quite a bit of control, quite a bit of spin on the back of my arrow on a hunting arrow because you're trying to overpower that broadhead and not let it plane off on you. Yes. Um, so that's what I tend to run, you know, on, on all my target bows, I'll shoot my arrows bear shaft out of my bow real close to the target and see what way they naturally spin coming out of the bow and fletch them to spin that way. Um, on hunting arrows, I don't usually do that as much. Um, I don't like to do a left offset or helical on my hunting arrows because then it unscrews the broadhead as it goes into the target or into the animal. Um, so I always fletch them to the right so that it tightens that as it goes into the target or the animal. So I've never, I've ran helical left two years in a row and I've never had a broadhead come unscrewed, uh, on animals. I have on targets. I will, I'm going to admit that, but I haven't had an issue too much with that on animals, like none, but it is a thing because people do comment that a lot. And I just am like, well, I haven't experienced that yet, but it does make sense. Yeah. I don't think you'd see it too much on an animal, especially with just one shot. You know, it's more when you're shooting your broadheads for practice, you know, after you shoot them for a while, they're going to try and unscrew on you. And I just hate dealing with that. Yeah. And honestly, the difference that I see between fletching them left and right is very minimal. I mean, it's not a very big difference when I've tested it. So I tend to, you know, maybe lose a quarter inch in my group size at 60 yards to be able to not have to worry about my broadheads unscrewing when I'm practicing with them. 
So what's your go-to fletching jig when it comes down to, you know, building bullets? Um, so I'm running the last chance Vane master pro right now. I've really been liking that. I used to always run a bits and burger. Um, the bad thing with those though, is every time I'd get one set up for something, I could never move it again. If I wanted to be able to refletch my arrows, cause you can never get it back the same again. Right. With the last chance jig, you know, it's got different settings on there. So I can just write down the settings for each of my arrows, you know, cause all my target mm-hmm. arrows, I'm going to set up a little bit different depending on what I'm doing. And then my hunting arrows are different as well. So I'll just write down all the settings for all my different arrows. And then I can set it up exactly the way I want it to fletch them for, you know, whatever arrow I'm setting up. So it's super, super nice. Oh, I dig that dude. Um, okay. Horses real quick, man. So how much stock do you guys have? Uh, where do you keep your stock? And how long have you been hunting with horses? Uh, so I've grown up with horses my whole life. You know, that's all I've ever hunted off of. On deer, we don't hunt with them as much because a lot of the places I hunt deer, there's not a lot of water and it's super gnarly getting in there. Um, a lot of the trails you can't even get a horse in on. Um, but for elk, I always hunt off horses usually. You know, I don't always like, I guess, hunt off the horses, but we use them to get to our hunting spots and either camp there or tie up and hunt for the day. Um, but, you know, I... I don't have, we don't have a ton, you know, just my dad always keeps some around. So we've usually got, you know, five to seven head depending on, you know, what year it is and stuff like that. We usually hunt, go, so it's usually me, my little brother and my dad, you know, when we hunt, so we'll have three riding horses and then we'll usually have a pack horse with us if we're packing in. If we're not packing anywhere and we're just doing day hunts, we'll just take the three riding horses and then we keep saddle panniers usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we shoot one, we just walk out. That makes sense. Okay. When do horses become a pain in the ass? Because my dad just got horses last year, so we haven't taken them on trail yet. He's still training and riding, and fortunately his wife is like level 10 horse rider. But uh, he's wanting to use them this year for elk hunting. They make me nervous. I've hunted off horses, oh, probably three or four times for elk with outfitters and stuff throughout the years. But I'm not a huge fan, dude, and – I'd, I'd like horses to get me into places, but I don't want to babysit them. So what's the, I guess, what's the pros and cons there? Yeah, they're always going to be a pain when you're hunting because you always got to go back to them and take care of them. You can't just, you know, leave them and go hunt. So it's kind of a trade-off. Um, for me, it's worth it because I can get back in way farther and I can hunt way harder when I'm in there because I didn't expend all of my energy packing camp in. Yes. Um and so it's super nice for me. Um, but usually what we'll do, you know, if we're day hunting, you know, what depends, depends on what we're doing. A lot of times where I just get to hunt weekends, we'll camp out, we'll camp on the road and we'll just get up super early and make it, you know, however far we're going five, seven miles in, in the morning, in the dark to get to our hunting spot. And then we hunt for the day and come out in the dark. So you, you know, you might get three hours of sleep at night, but you could do that for a couple of days and just hunt super hard for those couple of days while we're trying to, you know, be able to get back for, for the school week. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely a pain, you know, cause you'll, so we usually go, we'll tie up in the morning, hunt for the morning, go out there. Once everything kind of starts to bed down and stuff and kind of, you know, calm down a little bit and the winds are being a little shifty, we'll come back to the horses, you know, usually we'll untie them, let them feed a little bit, get them some water. Um, and then sometimes if things light up a little bit during the middle of the day, I'll head back out during the middle of the day for a little while. Um, you know, if not, we'll just kind of have some lunch and, 
take care of the horses and then head back out for the evening, you know, but if they light up during the middle of the day, then I go hunt for a while during the middle of the day, come back, you know, let them feed a little more, get them some more water and, uh, and then go back out for the evening hunt. Um, yeah, if we're, if we're camped in somewhere, um, and we're not feeding them at night, you know, feeding them hay at night, then we got to spend a little bit more time during the day, making sure they've got time to go feed. Um, so we'll come back to camp during the middle of the day, usually, you know, turn the horses out for a while, hobble them and then go hunt at night. It works pretty good if you kind of take turns as well. Oh, um, so a lot of times we'll have it. So, you know, cause we got three guys. So a lot of times somebody's like, Hey, it's your turn to do the horses today. So he'll have to come back during the middle of the day, take, take care of the hunt, the horses and everybody else can stay out and hunt for the day. Cause you don't need more than one guy to take care of a handful of horses. Think about the advantage you have. This is just me, the elk hunter thinking, Okay, you guys rode in five or seven miles in the dark. Morning didn't work out, but you got a good idea where they're at for the evening. And you go back, you take care of your horses, and then you can hunt till dark, 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 till it's not legal. And you got super dependable thermals in the evening, and the elk are going to get up, and they're going to stage, and they're going to head somewhere in that daylight, last 30 minutes, and you're going to be a-okay getting in on an opportunity and if you don't get them you don't booger them you hike back to the horses you ride out your wins your sense out of there your energy is the most important commodity that is conserved and you're back at camp late but you're sleeping you know back at camp you can get your food set up for the next day and yeah man september is finite you can do that for several days in a row you can sleep in october and to me, that's just an undeniable advantage to be able to, to hunt that. Like a lot of guys start hiking out in the evenings, man, because they know they got a two-hour hike out to the truck. And if you're seven miles deep, that's a lot longer than two hours. And now you're not camping in there and getting your scent in there overnight. So those elk aren't going to be as messed with. Yeah, that works out pretty good. And I've always been the guy, even if I'm hunting on foot, you cannot get me to give up until it's too dark to shoot anymore. You know, shooting lights over. I'll always be the guy that's just hunting and hunting and hunting until you have, you tell me I have to stop and then I'll just deal with it and I'll hike out for three or four hours in the dark if I have to, you know, because that last 30 minutes is going to be your best 30 minutes, but it does work out pretty good having the, the horses. My dad's kind of always taught me, you know, he's a lot of times he doesn't like to pack in and camp when we, when we're hunting off horses because a lot of times elk will move and you never know where they're going to be at from year to year. So we'll camp out and then we'll just ride in in the mornings so we can hunt three different drainages, three different days, depending on where we need to go to find the elk. Where if you pack in and camp, then you're kind of stuck in that spot and you really can't move. I mean, you can, but it's a ton of work to pick up camp and move everything. So if we're trying to locate elk, it works really well to stay out. You have to get up earlier in the mornings, you get back later at night, you know, it's harder on your horses and it's harder on you. But if you've got horses that are in good shape and you're able to do it, you know, you can, you can find elk a lot faster that way than being in one spot and being stuck if there's no elk in there. Dude, you just hit it out of the park. That's a lot of what we teach at Elk Shape Camps, honestly, is mobility and hunting three different drainages, three days, sign me up. I never want to be camped in the same spot because it is a pain in the ass to move. It takes up time. And quite honestly, elk are nomadic. They move. And I don't like pounding the same country more than a day. I like to get out, get to another spot. But uh, 
you'll never see me sign up for a, an, a drop camp in Colorado where some outfitter drops me off in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know if the elk are even there. And maybe they were there a week ago, but now they're not. And now I have a camp that I'm stuck and I'm married to and I can only venture out, you know, handful of miles in each direction and there's no elk. Yeah, so you hit it out of the park, man. And so for guys listening, that's a huge tip right there. That's the biggest tip of the day when it comes to elk hunting is mobility and being able to flex is everything. So Kyle, you're a cool dude, man. Um, where can people find more about you? Do you have a website? Do you have social platforms? Uh, where can people follow along your journey? Yeah, so I'm working on a website for the shop. I haven't quite got that done yet. Um, but they can follow me on Facebook or Instagram. You know, Instagram is kyle.douglas1. Um, and then Facebook, i got my personal page. I've got a professional uh, Kyle Douglas Professional Archer is my archery page. And then I've also got Douglas Archery, the Facebook page for my archery shop. Right on. Man, stay, hold the line. I'm going to chat with you in a second. But, guys, give this dude a follow. Congratulations on winning Vegas at the, the ripe age of 23. And seriously, super knowledgeable. I've been very impressed with what you've shared today. Great episode. Guys, remember, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Okay, guys, that was an awesome podcast. If I don't say so myself, um, just wanted to say, hey, Elk Shape Campers, we have the Wisconsin rescheduled. Uh, the, it's got a new date in July. The Colorado camp is rescheduled. It's got new dates in June. You can get the information off elkshape.com. We have a couple spots open at each camp, so if you want to make sure those camps get filled up, I have some really cool subject matter experts, and so everything is looking good there. And um, as far as bow build stuff, I'm waiting for Matthews to reopen so they can send me that 28 VXR right-handed. I want to do a bow build on YouTube with that. I'm going bear hunting to basically... Uh, as you're listening to this, I'm bear hunting. So I got the VXR 31 and a half all doped in with Grim Reaper Hades Micro 3 Blades. I'm running the Max Stealth uh, Helical to the left. And I'm going to actually take a, an e-bike, my Baku e-bike, and I'm going to go head to the backcountry. It's going to be awesome. If you guys want a deal on a Baku e-bike, uh, if you buy one online, use the discount code ELKSHAPE400. Save yourself 400 bucks. But uh, I'm pretty excited because those things are super stealthy, and I should be able to get into some cool stuff. And know your rules, know your regulations when you use them. Uh, Wilderness Athletes got a special discount code for you listeners and those that stuck around. Uh, ElkShape30 will get you 30% off your first purchase at Wilderness Athlete. And they're also emailing a bunch of cool home gym workouts. I did a few for them, so be on the lookout for that. Sicka Gear has been taking care of you ElkShape campers. I've been able to give away three core lightweight hoodies at every camp. So thank you so much, Sika. I really appreciate that. We just did a couple giveaways on YouTube and Instagram from Hamski. So be on the lookout. We're going to do one or two more. I'm not sure when, but soon. As well as Black Gold. I'm going to give away a vert, um, an Ascent or a Verdict. I'm not sure which, but I'm going to give away a Black Gold site on Instagram soon. Uh, let me give you a couple more discount codes because i got to hook you guys up. If you're pinching pennies and you're not working, every dollar adds up. So Black Ovis, if you want to get pretty much A to Z anything hunting gear, use the discount code ELKSHAPE for 20% off. And that does not apply to Sika gear. But the owner of Black Ovis, Kendall, told me if you are a listener, call in Black Ovis. Tell them you're an ELKSHAPE listener and you want a discount on Sika gear. They'll hook it up. That's awesome. Climate for sleep systems. Get yourself a new sleeping pad. They're worth their weight in gold. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE20 to get 20% off. 
And then Lakewood, the double bow case for you guys that are traveling out of state and you need to bring your backup bow, get a Lakewood bow case. They're amazing. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE2020. Save 10% off. Guys, thanks for listening. I got a really good podcast coming up on the next one. This guy is 78 years old. He's been elk hunting for like, I don't know, 50-something years. He was a former CEO of Boone and Crockett. He's been uh, a chairman on the board for uh, Montana Wildlife and Fish Park Foundation. Uh, he killed his first elk in like the early 70s. He's killed several, several, so many elk he can't even keep track of. This guy's a living legend. I'm going to tease you with that, so come back next Friday and check that out. In the meantime, keep working hard towards your goals. And remember, separation is in the preparation.